Every week, Andre is going to invite the restaurant industry's biggest innovators, entrepreneurs, and experts at running the pass into his kitchen. Turn up the heat, salt the rim. It's time to run the pass. So today we have Chef Matthew Peters, the first American to ever win the gold at the Bocuse d'Or. The Bocuse d'Or, for people that are unfamiliar with it, is almost the equivalent of the Olympics in the culinary world. And he was the first American to ever win it. It's a competition that takes place biannually in Lyon, France. Matthew Peters also worked in some of the greatest restaurants in the United States, Per Se and the French Laundry, part of the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group on both coasts each have three Michelin stars. So today we're going to get into the preparation and the training that goes into competing in a world-class competition and a little bit about uh, what he's up to and where he's headed here in Austin. So without further ado, uh, Matthew Peters. Matt, how are you today? Good. What about yourself? Good. Did you you survive the ice storm, the, the blizzard that we just had? We're surviving. Uh, much better now. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy how Austin functions and, you know, growing up north in Pennsylvania, you know, something like this would be just a typical, you know, winter month or day, uh, down here. It's, it's, everything's different. Um, but you know, you get one week of hard freeze and snow and then next day it's 70 degrees and sunny and everyone's back out on the water again. Yeah, it blew my mind. We had at my house, we lost uh, power and then we lost water. Um, and so I, I stayed at work at the hotel. And then when I came back home yesterday, it's like the most beautiful day ever. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was wild. It was wild. The water was, was warm. Like firing up the little fire pit out back. And I was like, oh my God, we're finally out of the house, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot, a lot of people, uh, I'm, I'm sure, know you from uh, being the first, uh, you know, American chef to ever win the Bocuse d'Or, and I'm sure yeah. you've, you've you've talked about that uh, at length. So I, I don't want to get into that too much, um, but I, I did want a little bit talk about, you know, what was what was the preparation like going into the Bocuse d'Or, and you know, kind of how did you get started in that process, and then what were some of the things that uh, that you would do as a daily ritual, and what was the the training and preparation like? I feel like to some degree, Bocuse was always in training. When you're shooting for working with some of the best chefs in the country, let alone the world, um, like Thomas Keller himself, you know, those restaurants really kind of set us up for the success um, and helped us through the training process. I, I, I think it basically started there. I really didn't know what I was going to get into when I decided to do the Bocuse d'Or. Um, I never wanted to do competitions. I never really even thought of that that would be a route that I would go down. I had one goal, one goal only, and that was to eventually work into the top restaurants as I possibly can, and then one day run and operate you know, something in the realm of that at the top tier as possible. That was always the goal. Bocuse d'Or just was something that came across to me and intrigued me throughout the process, not only because of the connections, but the, the recognition uh, that these chefs were seeing, the ability to put all that hard work and all that training and all those tools and experiences and finally present them to some of the, the biggest figures in our industry. So I think ultimately that was one of the biggest things that 
uh, drove me to doing the Boku store. And then watching Phil compete in 2015 and winning the competition kind of solidified it, seeing the fact that, okay, we're so close, we can actually do this. And, you know, I felt like having that relationship with Phil and then kind of creating that team around that, I thought that was like the perfect opportunity. But in terms of training, I mean, it whooped my ass. I'll be honest with you. There was nothing easy about it. I mean, you completely remove yourself from restaurant life which is very structured. You have a huge team. You have individuals that are there to help you and support you. And then all of a sudden, you're basically down to like one or two people again. Um, so you're, and, you're doing all your training at this point in, in Napa, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah. So we'll kind of, I, I know it's a little all over the place, but it's just like we started in the restaurant. And then once we knew that we were going to be representing the United States for the competition, then we moved out to Napa, California. And then at Napa, uh, we had a training facility, but there were so many challenges that came with that because the training facility that we were operating in was actually kind of being built as we were building our food and our, our runs. So, and it was 45 minute drive every single morning to get there. And it was in a back of a vineyard that didn't have access to produce your typical purveyors. So you had to run around from one restaurant to another or grocery store to go and pick up anything. So uh, that was kind of the complication process that we fell into. But once we actually got in there and up and operational, I mean, it's, at the beginning, it's just myself, the Colmi, who's got to be the under the age of 21, and maybe one or two people. And so you don't have the, the knowledge and the experience surrounding you like I was accustomed to at per se in the French Laundry, uh, where you're able to bounce off all these ideas, these creative moments that you would kind of have. And now you're kind of, you know, talking to a very young kid that has absolutely no idea what kind of language you're speaking. And he's just like, you know, sure, <laughs> let's, let's give it a shot. So the process took a long time and it, it, it brought me to a whole different way of looking at food, a whole different way of communicating with people. And really, really taught me patience to try to like understand like how we needed to get where we needed to get to with limited resources and people. And, and it wasn't until later uh, in that year that we end up start building that team and building those resources around us. So it was, it was a challenge at the beginning and it got a little bit easier and then it became a huge challenge down the road once you start balancing all the pieces and the food and the execution and the perfection that you're shooting for right up until um, the competition in Lyon. So it's a long road, long journey. What, what does the team look like? So you, so you mentioned it's, you, it's just you and the Comi, but you have more people around that eventually come in um, to help with the preparation. So how many people are, are involved in the process with you throughout the course of the training? It varies throughout the year. Uh, at the beginning, when there's less work to be done, and it's kind of the creative process. There's probably, you know, a group of the coach, myself, the Comi, which was Harrison Turon at the time. And it was really just the core individuals there. And then you would have Chef Keller, Daniel Balud, some of the, the chefs that were incorporated into that, that group to kind of help mentor that process a little bit and kind of help that creative process. But they were only available, you know, you're talking once or twice a month, you know, three, maybe a call once a week if you're lucky. So it's really kind of dictated on us kind of manage that. And then after about six months, we start building the team together so that we can actually allocate the resources. We can move people from some of our 
you know, neck of the woods, which was like from New York, uh, who we were familiar working with that spoke the language. And then we started building the team from there. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we had about eight individuals, not including Martin and his whole team, which is a whole nother conversation. But that uh, Martin was part of the whole tooling, the platter building. This is uh, Martin from Crucial Detail. Exactly. Martin Kastner. So, which, honest to God, that guy played probably one of the biggest roles in both our years between Phil and us and really kind of changed the whole game for Team USA. His ability to do the type of work that he does is unlike anybody else in the in in at least in the states, from my knowledge. And so you, you mentioned that it was a forty five minute drive um, to get to the training facility at, at one point. So, uh, what what time did training start, and what did your morning routine look like uh, going into that? I assume you had to get up bright and early, and and they were long days of training. Yeah, we tried to cut out all the negative, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the late night of maybe having a casual cocktail on a Friday and Saturday nights kind of quickly switched over to, you know, early bedtimes. What we tried to do is get on a very regimented schedule. And we also tried to dictate it around what we knew our runs were going to be in Lyon. So we try to get our body on a clock that would kind of uh, mimic the same scenarios and situations that we would have there. Uh, mm-hmm. So we were on a very early morning run. When you do the Boku store in Lyon, you're basically there at five o'clock in the morning you're in preparation and you're in the box by 7 a.m., if not earlier. And the run usually starts shortly after that, about one hour after you get to that box. So for us, we always wanted to get up, get operational. That led with a quick workout in the morning. So typically we wake up around 4.30, 5 o'clock, get to the gym, spend at least 45 minutes at the gym. And then we would start making our runs for produce, products, tooling, spend the next hour and a half, two hours getting our product to our facility. And then from there, we would spend as long as we needed, anywhere from 8 to 12 hours. And then we'd turn around and go home, go to sleep, and do the whole thing <laughs> the next day. It, it started at five days a week, with one day kind of being in just a complete R&D kind of bouncing off ideas kind of session. Uh, and then one day completely removed so we can kind of refresh. But once you start getting into the actual testing and the runs and uh, the food production part of it, that it becomes quickly seven days a week. Everything starts to snowball down. You don't get a lot of this information till about three months out of when you need to be in Lyon. So you really are just kind of slapping things against the wall to see if they stick. And then once they actually roll out the the files of and the explanations of what you can and cannot do, then that's when you start to dictate, okay, okay, all these things that we've been testing, this is what we're going to start practicing on and refining and, and perfecting uh, all the way to the end. So there's challenges that you face leading all the way up until that, that date when you're in Lyon. You know, roles change every year, so you can't base everything off of what you did uh, in 2015. You know, we had new roles in 2017 that we had to play around with that threw us for a curveball that we had garnishes and things that we were planning on doing, but then we had to quickly switch because they they were illegal at that time for us. And let me ask you, did you, yeah. you know, obviously this is a mentally taxing competition and I have to imagine that the stress levels were high and here you're training long hours and did you have anything 
as in terms of like mental rituals that you would go through or anything like that to prepare mentally for it? Or was it just the time in the kitchen? Well, we try to create as much pressure and strain on us as possible. Honestly, it's kind of like, it's like hot yoga or something. Yeah. It's just like, and I, Honestly, I've never done hot yoga, so I can't tell you how unbearable that is or not. I don't know. Can, can you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I it's can pretty just un- imagine it's pretty, that I'm, it sucks, Matt, so. I'm wearing yoga pants right now. It's unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, I'm just trying to imagine what would I not want to do, and that's exactly one of them. And so that's we try to position ourselves in that kind of environment because mm-hmm. we knew once we're in the box, you know, we would, we want to make it as uncomfortable as we can in our comfortable area, right? Because mm-hmm. we're training in something that we were familiar with, that we're surrounded by people that we know and that we care about. And when we're there, you know, we have fierce competition. We have people that don't like us. We have people that, you know, that there's so much noise and attention and cameras and distractions that we wanted to kind of create those moments throughout our training process so that when we got in there, it was that much easier. So we used to play like God, uh, terrible European techno music. I mean, just crazy crap uh, for days and days and days to the point where it almost became catchy and we couldn't do a run without it. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, there was was just little things like this that we would do throughout the entire training process that would just make it much easier when we got to the game day. Did you ever watch the the show on Netflix, Ozarks? Yeah. Do you remember they're in Mexico and they throw them in a hole and they blast, they blast the music to torture them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I imagine that's what you're going through. That's basically what we did. I mean, we would even bring, I forget the one time Phil brought in a whole band of people uh, with just musical instruments and drums and things just to kind of like create just utter chaos in the room. And it was on like one of our final training periods. And we're just like, what the hell is going on? It kind of stopped us for a period of time. But yeah, as, as wacky and as weird as you can imagine, that's basically what we did. So during the competition, was there anything that happened during the competition? Are there any, were there any like, oh shit moments that you thought, oh, this could, this could go bad if I don't fix this right away? Or did everything go smooth sailing? No, nothing ever goes smooth, right? I mean, if it's going right, you know, something's wrong. (laughs) You know, nothing's perfect. And that was our situation right out the gate. Uh, Harrison had some challenges. The tweels that we made, the pretzel tweels, I think we had one issue with them the entire training process, and we knew exactly what went wrong, and we said, okay, we're never going to do that again, and we never had an issue, and then, of course, once we got in there, for whatever reason, I forget what it was, it's like timing was slightly off, or the, the Comey that he had working next to him just was was slightly different challenge because they didn't speak English for us, and then, so it, it threw us off slightly at the beginning, but all of his tweels broke. So you had to redo the dough. You had to remake everything. And I think right out within the first 15 minutes, we knew we were about 20 minutes behind in our run because of all the things that we had to redo at that point. And then it threw off our oven times, which was another challenge about three and a half hours in. We had these little potato cups that we did. And this also was another incident where it happened like once in our training process. And because our timing was off before, it threw off our oven. So I had these potato cups that we had to press with this metal mold. And if they sat in the metal molds too long and then they got baked, they stuck to the metal mold. 
because mm. of the resting period or something got cold and not quite sure exactly what happened, but we told each other that we'll never do that again. <laughs> and of course that happened on the one day that uh, we needed to be perfect. But the thing is, is we knew how to navigate those issues. Right. And yeah. that's the whole point of having a coach, you know, Phil was great in terms of being that air traffic controller, if you will. Uh, he's kind of got all the information in front of you so he can start to reposition your run to better kind of um, catch up on timing. The way that you kind of position ourselves is, you know, I put as much work onto Harrison as I possibly can, relieve me from some extra timing so that if something did go wrong, then I could pick up some extra work and kind of get ourselves back on track. It just because we had about 20, 25 minutes that we had to recoup, which is a daunting task at that time. Is this the only competition you've ever done, by the way? It's the only competition and probably the only one that I'll ever do. <laughs> that's, that's what, Leah, like, why would you at this point? <laughs> walk away, well, I mean, walk away you know, on top. Yeah, mic drop, right? But it, it's, I'll tell you what, it's the one competition. Just, there's so much creative people there's an ability to kind of do everything and anything you would ever want in a culinary field. That's the opportunity to do it. And you have all the resources and the people around you to make that happen. That is what makes that competition so great. It is hard to put yourself completely out there, especially in front of those individuals, but the world itself kind of, and the pressures that you have from them. But, you know, it's, it's an ability to kind of really showcase the technique and the creativity and, the abilities that you have on a national world stage at that point. And I think that's, that's the most rewarding part of it. The friendships and the, the relationships you get to meet throughout that process is amazing. And the, the food, I mean, you're doing, you know, food that even surprised myself that I could even create. So mm. it, it really pushed me to a whole nother level. Uh, it showed me another level of organization and uh, communication between you know, one individual to another and the appreciation and the value of people around you. So now when they're calling the, the winners out, what, do, what are you feeling before? Are, are you thinking you won? Like when, when they start? No, no. They... We, we, we thought we lost <laughs> because you're so used to having perfect runs, right? You go into it like, Oh, we had a great run. We had a great run. We had a great run and we're going to knock this out of the park. And then when something goes wrong, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. And yeah, all you think about is all the negatives that went wrong in that, that run. And maybe the food wasn't as tight as you wanted. But, you know, the one thing that Thomas always said, he came up and he goes, they have no idea what you are going to present today. They have no idea. What they, what they saw is still amazing. What you're relating to from what you've done in the past might be one thing, but they have no recollection of what you did. Uh, or what you've done in the past. And, you know, it might be what we think was perfect for us, for them, this, this piece might still be perfect for them. So I think that's where we had to like, men like when you're mentally trained and you're focused on trying to be as perfect as you can, and when some slips happen and it's not perfect, then, you know, you think, you know, at that point, and we had no idea what anybody else did. Like we, we refused to look at any other platters. We had no idea what kind of food anybody did. We don't know the problems other, you know, countries had. So for us, we just knew what we did and we didn't perform, I think at our top level, but we did really well. But, you know, there's just so much uncertainty because you're up against really good people and everyone is putting up amazing food 
And so when one little thing goes wrong, that could throw you completely off. Mm. So we, we so didn't you, know what they What are you that. feeling when they announced that you're the gold uh, first place winner? I mean, what, what's the feeling going through you when they make that announcement? Is it like a big adrenaline jump? Oh, Jesus. I mean, if you saw the, the video and you saw Harrison jump out of his pants, I mean, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was it, – it was a moment because we thought we were on the podium, but I thought, honestly, I was like, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I got bronze or I got, or if we got silver again. And once bronze and silver guy called and we knew who got like some of the honorary prizes before that, we we're like, holy shit, we, we, we could, this could be us. And so that's when your heart starts racing. And then once you hear that, that, that name, I mean, I don't even know how I reacted. I just know it's just like a boost of, of uh, uh, emotions that kind of got lifted and and then after that it's just like a snowball effect after that's wild and i you know i've seen the video many times and you know seeing the embrace that thomas gave you it's pretty amazing which by the way i think it's pretty wild that you guys share the same birthday how'd you guys figure that out it's <laughs> <laughs> kind of odd yeah my parents knew i was going to be a chef so they're like you know what i heard about this guy um funny enough funny enough we had four or five people in the thomas keller group that all celebrated birthdays uh on on the same day so it's not uncommon right yeah you know seven billion people in the world i guess it's it's bound to happen (laughs) right Um, so what brings you to austin so now you're in austin um what are some of the newer projects that you're working on now austin's been such a journey my wife was born and raised here. We met at the French Laundry. We decided to, you know, make this pilgrims to Austin. And we didn't know we wanted to come down here right off the bat. You know, I, I love New York City. I still, that, that, that city holds a special place in my heart. But we knew that if we wanted to potentially, you know, own a restaurant or, you know, have a family and do all these things that, you know, this New York City doesn't really <laughs> grant those opportunities. So we were trying to find cities that were kind of up and coming, uh, something that kind of married the, the two worlds that we enjoyed so much, which was California and, and New York, which we spent most uh, of our lives together at. And, you know, going in and out of Austin, uh, since Lauren grew up here, visiting family and visiting the city uh, really captured me because I thought Texas is just a bunch of cowboys right around on some horses and shit so for me coming down here and seeing austin the way it was really kind of took on me and i was just like wow this is feels a little bit like california it's got a nice city and the food seems fantastic the people are great i'm more laid back and chill um i feel like the city represents that a lot so we just saw a tremendous amount of opportunity to kind of build a restaurant group down here potentially hopefully knock on wood uh, as well, and a family. So mm-hmm. that's what kind of drew us to Austin. We started bouncing off the ideas, started communicating with people, met a lot of great people along the way that have, you know, reached out and been more than helping uh, throughout this in time. Introductions to people, to different chefs. And at this point, we're just trying to find the space. We have a couple locations that we're, we're really shooting for. We actually had one right before COVID hit, but you know, thank God that we were able to kind of drop that and move forward because that would have been just a headache to kind of deal with. And I'm fortunate enough not to have had that, but also I understand how much it's affected our industry. So we've been trying to find ways to to help in any way that we possibly can. And then of course we get this fucking storm that comes through (laughs) 
and and just knocks us on our butts again. So, you know, I, I think it's good. I think we have a direction that we're going to go in. We definitely want to bring a fine dining restaurant to the city. We have a couple ideas. It's definitely going to be in a much more, I hate the word fine dining to some degree. It's going to be a little bit more like fun fine dining, if you will. We definitely want to find a way that we can kind of break the typical mold of the pretentiousness that kind of comes with a uh, fine dining establishment, uh, but knowing that that's part of the allure too, right? So mm-hmm. you, you can't completely dumb it down to the point where it doesn't make sense, but also kind of capture the essence of the allure that fine dining does offer. What do you what do you think of the Austin food scene? You've been here now for a few years. What do you think of it? And then what do you think it's missing? I think it's growing. I think it there's so much potential and opportunity. I think it's just going to continue continue to blow up in a in a good way you know i think it's very casual Mm -hmm. um which i appreciate uh and love i think that's some of the best food comes from kind of that homey love you know from the heart kind of soul soulful uh food and there's a ton of that down here and i think that's where you know i think austin really blossoms and then also just having the different cultures it's i don't think it's that well diverse yet i think it's it's slowly getting there i i, I start to see different styles of restaurants it's, you know austin is it's kind of like tacos and sushi mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i i feel like there's a ton of that but there's also a lot of you know, I, th- I think i think you just created the next austin million dollar idea taco sushi <laughs> oh shit um, i'm on it you want in you i'm ready in. i'm in i'm on it I, there's, there's a couple crazy ideas that, uh, maybe we'll talk about on another time, but I've got to keep those close to my, close to me first. But no, I, I just, you know, there, there really isn't a ton of fine dining in the city, right? Uh, mm-hmm. there's no tasting menus to the most part. I mean, here and there, there's some great ones, but you don't have, you know, some of those, those iconic spots like you do in some of these bigger cities that I think mm-hmm. is just, there's a lot of people with the movement and the growth of the city that I think that demand is itching closer and closer. And, and I think that's where we're coming in at the right time for some degree to be able to kind of capture a little piece of that market and the ability to kind of really showcase some of our experiences and uh, our talent. So, you know, really looking forward to trying to bring another level of fine dining to the city. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate uh, you coming on the show with us, getting to know you a little bit better through the uh, through the competition, through what your thoughts are in the future. And uh, hopefully we'll catch up soon and uh, smoke a cigar or watch a fight or something. Absolutely. Name it. All right, brother. We'll talk soon, okay? I'm in. Appreciate it.